you don't have a, a Bible with you, uh, the passage that we're going to be looking at today is printed in your bulletin uh, on page 7. If you're watching online, if you have the bulletin up, you can see it there. Uh, you can also get this passage on a, a Bible app, like the Version app or the ESV Bible app. Um, you can pull it up on your, your phone. Uh, but as usual, I would encourage you as we walk through this passage together to have your, your Bible open or have the, the, the passage open on your device uh, because we're going to be referring to the passage uh, throughout our time today and it'll be a lot easier and a lot more useful for you in internalizing the truths of God's word to be, be reading the words uh, for yourself with your, with your own eyes. And so again, this is Luke chapter 22, and I'll begin reading in verse 31. And as a reminder, this is in the context of the Last Supper. Um, Jesus has just instituted the, the Lord's Supper for his people, um, and, and now he's, he's continuing that final bit of instruction before they move to the Garden of Gethsemane. So again, Luke chapter 22, verse 31. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me, deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, Nothing. He said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, that he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. 
And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. We know that it is sharp, it is living, that, that your, your word is a sharp two-edged sword, piercing to the, the heart of the, the marrow, Lord. And Father, we pray that, that this sword of your word would strengthen us today, Lord, that it would help us be ready for the day of suffering, for the day of temptation when it comes. So, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have had the experience before of the calm before the storm. Um, I remember very vividly when I was a, a child growing up in Colorado that that there was there was a summer day when it was it was it was dark. There were clouds in the sky, and you could see the this wall of rain, this wall of water moving slowly towards you, and you know started off in the distance, got closer and closer, and there was a point when you could see it coming down the street, and it was moving slow enough that, that if you had a bike, you may have actually been able to outrun this, this wall of rain on your bike. And there was a point when on one side of this wall, you're completely dry. On the other side of the wall, you were absolutely soaking wet. And it's the, the calm before the storm. And, and, and you experience that before a major storm. The, you don't hear the birds singing. Um, it's, it's quiet. Everything is getting ready for the storm to strike, but yet it's calm. And that's the image here in this text. This is the, the final calm before the storm. The, the wall of the storm of suffering is about to hit, and it's going to hit hard, that quite literally all hell is about to break loose in the ministry of Jesus, that he is about to take the fullness of hell on himself, um, the weight of God's judgment to redeem his people. He's going to suffer. He's going to be betrayed. And here again, this, this final calm before the storm. And I think it's important for us to recognize that in this life, there's no real true safe place, that either in life you are currently in the storm and you're suffering, or the storm of suffering is on the horizon, it's coming down the street, it's, it's brewing, you're, you're either suffering or about to suffer, you're either in the storm or the storm is coming. And so the question then arises for each and every one of us is, are we ready for the storm when it finally arrives? Are we ready to suffer? And probably even a more important question is this, of how can you be prepared for suffering? How can you be ready to suffer? That's the, the question that we're going to look at today from this text. And we're going to look at it in, in four sections together. But again, I encourage you to leave your your Bible open. And so first, we prepare for suffering by remembering who is against us. Who is against us? And 
And look at verse 31 there in your Bible. Jesus says, Simon, Simon. He's speaking to Peter, but he's using his pre-conversion name, his pre-disciple name. He was renamed by Jesus. Your name is Simon, but you're going to be called Peter, which means the rock. But here he uses his name Simon, almost foreshadowing the, the denial that's coming up soon. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. And you say, well, why? That he might sift you like wheat. That he might throw you up in the air and, uh, and, and destroy you, essentially. And in the original Greek, the, the word you, that he demanded to have you, is actually plural. And, and so Jesus is, is saying, Simon... Jesus, um, um, I'm sorry, um, Satan demanded to have all of you. He demanded to have all of the disciples, that he might sift all of the disciples like wheat. And it reminds us of the the book of Job in the Old Testament, where Satan comes into the, the very throne room of God from going to and fro on the earth. And he says to God, have you considered Job, or actually God says, have you considered my servant Job? And uh, Satan brings this, this accusation against Job and says, you know, God, really, the only reason that, that Job worships you and honors you is because you've put a hedge around his life. The, the storm of suffering has never really affected him. And so he's worshiping you and he's honoring you because everything's been great in his life. But if you let the storm of suffering blow into his life, if you let him truly suffer, he's not ready and he will curse you. He will deny you. And of course, God gave him permission, Satan permission, to afflict Job, to sift Job like wheat. And apparently there was some kind of similar heavenly conversation regarding the disciples leading up to the crucifixion. In some mysterious way, according to Jesus, Satan demanded to have the disciples. That he wanted to strike the shepherd and scatter the sheep. He wants to destroy their witness. He wants to destroy their assurance. He wants to destroy their lives. And of course, this this picture of Satan is consistent with what we read elsewhere in Scripture. 1 Peter 5.8 says, this is Peter speaking, he says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Or Paul in 1 Corinthians 2.11 says that we shouldn't be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. So Satan has designs on on our lives. He is out to get us. He wants to sift us like wheat. He is smarter than we are. He is older than we are. 
And he wants to undermine everything that we love, everything that we hold dear. He wants to see our marriages destroyed. He wants to see us in addiction or tied up into some sort of false legalistic religion. He wants us to disgrace the name of Christ. He wants us to lose our sense of assurance of salvation. He wants to see our bodies afflicted, and if he can't do that, he wants to see us in absolutely perfect health so we focus on this life rather than on the things of God, that one way or, the, or another, he has designs that he wants to sift us like wheat. And so the question then is, do we recognize our spiritual enemy, that knowing who is against us is part of being ready for suffering. And you might say, well, I don't believe in Satan. And maybe you're at the place where you have the, the cultural caricature uh, of Satan, this almost comical image, nothing to really be feared, nothing that is truly powerful, nothing that is truly out to get us in a, in a personal way. But according to the witness of Scripture, that we have an enemy. He's powerful. He's out to get us. And so we need to be wise. We need to be watchful. We need to know. We need to remember who is against us. But then second, we also prepare for suffering by remembering who is for us. And this is even more important than remembering who is against us. Because if we just focus on who is against us, we'll be afraid or we'll turn to some kind of superstition to protect ourselves. But in verse 30, 31, again, we see who is for us. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you all that he might sift you all like wheat. But I have prayed for you. And there it's singular. I prayed for you, Peter that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned, strengthen your brothers. And so here's Jesus telling Peter, I have prayed for you. That there is, there is someone against you, but there is someone even greater for you. That Satan may be a, a roving lion seeking someone to devour, as we read. But we have the, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb who was slain, uh, that greater is the one who is us in us than the one who is in the world, that, that Satan has disarmed all spiritual powers, all uh, principalities, that he has disarmed Satan, that he has put him to, to open shame by triumphing over him, that, that he has destroyed the one who, who has the power over death. That is the devil through death on the cross. And so that means that as we prepare for suffering, that we keep our eyes on Jesus. We keep our eyes on our advocate, on his intercession, that he is the great high priest, as we saw in the call to worship. And then in Hebrews 7, verse 25, it says that he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And that's a striking phrase, that Jesus always lives to make intercession for his people. 
that he lives to make intercession for you, that he is praying for you today, that even if you are not in the place of suffering, he knows the suffering that is going to come into your life. He knows what's going to happen to you. And you may not be prepared, but Jesus is prepared, that he is praying for you in advance, that your faith may not fail, uh, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ, uh, that, that he uh, is working and that nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God and Christ. Or if you find yourself and you say, I'm in suffering today, I'm in the storm, and I think my, my faith is going to fail, I'm not sure if I can hold out any longer, then the call is to remember that, that Jesus always lives to make intercession for his people, that, that you may be too weak to pray for yourself today. You may think that you don't have the, the strength to sustain your own faith, but Jesus is there feeding the fire of your, of your faith with the oil of his grace uh, to keep you going. He says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And that in his mercy, he even uses our suffering and plans our suffering to serve others. That when you have turned again, strengthen my brothers. That, that he uses our suffering and our pain and our affliction and his mercy in the end to encourage and strengthen others. But of course, as I, as I say this, the reality is that the opposite is also true. That in Christ... We have a great high priest making intercession for us. But outside of Jesus, we are on our own. And no matter how smart we are, no matter how outwardly moral we are, we are never smart enough or outwardly moral enough to face the power of Satan by our own strength. That if we try to face him by our own strength, he will sift us like wheat. And the image that came to mind was the International Space Station. When you think of the, these astronauts in a space station or even going out in a space suit, and they need protection. They are too weak. They cannot survive in the vacuum of space. And it's the same for us, that, that we think that we're strong, we think that we're powerful, but trying to venture out into true spiritual darkness by our own strength is like going out into the vacuum of space without a suit, without any kind of protection, that it's not going to work, that, that the answer for all of us is to be in Christ, that he is the space station that protects us in the vacuum. He is the suit that protects us, that, that it is his righteousness that we are clothed in, his life that gives us strength to face suffering, to face the accusations of Satan when they come. And that doesn't mean that we won't suffer. We will suffer. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Acts 14.22 says, Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. 2 Corinthians 1.5 says that we share abundantly in Christ's suffering. And that's his life. We share in his comfort and his suffering. So through Christ, 
We may share abundantly in his comfort, too. We share in his suffering and in his comfort. So again, we prepare for suffering by remembering who is for us. But third, we prepare for suffering by remembering our true spiritual sword. Our true spiritual sword. And that's what we see in verse 35 to 38 in your Bible. That Jesus, as he's continuing to talk to his disciples around the table, reminds them of their missionary journeys earlier in the book of Luke. And we we looked at those in, in detail. And he says, did you lack anything? And did you bring anything with you? And they say, no, we didn't bring anything. We didn't lack anything. They experienced hospitality. They did uh, miracles. They, they experienced conversion and outpouring of the, the Spirit of God in their, in their ministry. But then Jesus says, well, what's coming is going to be different. But suffering is coming. You're going to face opposition. And so you're not going to be able to rely simply on the hospitality of others. He says, if you have a money bag, bring it. If you have a knapsack, bring it. And then this very seemingly strange saying of Jesus where he says that if if you have a cloak, sell it and buy a sword. And then the the disciples down in, in verse 38, they say, well, look, we have swords. Here are two swords. And Jesus says, it is enough. And this has caused all kinds of confusion in church history. What were the disciples doing with swords when they're with Jesus to begin with? Why would Jesus tell them to sell their cloak and buy a sword? It seems strange. And, and there are some who, who have taken it in a very literal sense that, that Jesus is telling the disciples here to, to keep and bear arms, that he wants them to go out and get a sword and, and use the sword in some way. And uh, they, they say, well, the money bag is probably a literal image. The knapsack is a literal image. So why wouldn't the sword be a literal image? And the disciples had swords with them. And Jesus could have told them in advance not to have swords. And he, when, it, when they say, look, here are two swords, Jesus doesn't say, get rid of those or, or don't carry swords. He says, it is enough. And that itself, people say, well, maybe it is enough means that's enough sword, but that's good. Bring two swords. Two swords is all you'll need. That, that's how some people read it and, and take it. And I think that that interpretation is wrong. I think that interpretation is incorrect. And as a side note, uh, that interpretation was also one of the arguments used in defense of the Crusades back in the 11th century, that many of the biblical commentators that were trying to argue at the time of why the church could wage war, they said, well, remember Luke 22. Jesus tells the disciples to carry the sword. And so the church, as the uh, ones who follow in the tradition of the apostles, have the apostolic authority, the succession of the apostles, also have the right to bear the sword and to wield the sword in defense of the truth. And that, that's what Jesus is doing here. He's, he's setting up the position of the church to wield the sword in the defense of truth. And tragically, that interpretation has um, 
played itself out in, in the loss of many lives in the name of the church. And so if that reading isn't correct, and I don't believe it is, what is Jesus saying? Well, I think it's helpful as we, as we look at the, the context of this, that Jesus, of course, is about to go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and then he's going to be confronted by Judas and the officials who are going to haul him uh, before the, the tribunal of the Sanhedrin. And when, when Judas comes with the, the officials, with the servants of the high priest, the disciples pull out their swords. And we know from the book of John that it's actually Peter who, who pulled out his sword and cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest, who is actually named in the book of John, which some think is an indication that he may have become a believer later, the fact that we know his name specifically. But Peter cuts the man's ear off in defense of Jesus. And this is what Jesus says as he heals the man's ear in Matthew 26. He says, put away your sword, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. And so how do you square that with what Jesus is saying in our text? Where he told them to bring a sword. And this is what I think that, that Jesus is, is getting at here. He's saying to his, his disciples that suffering is coming. I want you to be ready, and I want you to be prepared, that I want you to bring along everything that you need to be ready. And quite often in Christ's ministry, he would speak in, in imagery. Uh, he said, I have food that you don't know about. The disciples say, did he bring food along with them? And he says, you don't understand what I'm saying. I'm not talking about literal food. And I think that that's, again, what is happening here as well, where, where Jesus is, is saying, bring, bring a sword. And the disciples take it very bluntly. Well, okay, we have our, our swords. Uh, but J.C. Ryle says that the disciples took his word about the sword literally. He meant it to be taken figuratively. And if you read it in that way, then... Then when Jesus says, it's enough, that it's almost exactly the same way that God says, it's enough, in uh, Deuteronomy 3.26, that, that he's saying, it's enough, that, that we're not going to talk about this anymore. That, and, and I think he understood that the hardness of the hearts of the disciples, that they didn't get it, that trying to explain it to them at this point wouldn't work, uh, that they would eventually understand. And so, again, what is... Jesus talking about? Well, again, there's always a danger of over-spiritualizing of the Bible, but I think that he's talking about a different kind of sword, that, that he's talking about the, the sword of the Spirit, what, what we read in uh, the book of Ephesians chapter 6, the, the sword of the Spirit that is the Word of God. And, I, and that is also, I think, confirmed in the, the context here, where in verse 37, he, he talks about the scriptures. He says that, that you, you know that the scriptures are going to be fulfilled in me, that all that is written is going to come about. He's, he's quoting the Old Testament scriptures in fulfillment of himself. He's, he's saying that, that this is what's going to be played out. It's the Bible that we trust, the Bible that is true, that is, is reliable. It's, it's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And I think it's, it's interesting. I, I've, I've heard reports recently as, as we think about what Jesus is saying here that 
in, in light of terrifying events in our world that, uh, that many people have been buying guns, buying ammunition, that, that gun sales are up. And I'm not making any kind of political statement either for gun ownership or against gun ownership. I think that there is a biblical case for just war. I think that there is a biblical case for self-defense. I don't think that this is the passage where you make that case, though. And, and I think, though, that, that it's, it's fascinating that, that people see danger on the horizon. They see a threat perceived or, or real. And that, that our, our natural response to say, how can I be prepared for suffering is we think, okay, I need to get a sword. I need to get a gun. I need to be, to be ready. And it's, it's fascinating that, that the response to threat is not, I need the word of God. That the, the response is not, you know, I need a, a Bible in my hands and in my heart to be able to face what is, what is coming. And that ultimately that is the sword that will prepare us for suffering for what is coming. And, and it's so important as we're preparing for suffering, before suffering arrives, to have this sword, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God in our hearts and our minds, to read the word, to study the word, to memorize the word, to internalize the word, to study biblical doctrine, to study objections to biblical truth, to become the kind of people that, that when we are pricked by suffering of life, that, that what comes out of us is, is Bible, that we bleed Bible. And that is how we prepare to face what comes in life. Because when suffering hits, it's often not the time that we can be in the Word for different reasons, that that you may be too sick to read the Bible. You may be too tired to read the Bible. You may be too sad or too distraught to read the Bible or to, to, to really think through the questions of, is this actually true? And that, that those are things that we have to do in advance so often before suffering comes. And so that's why it's so important of what we are planting in our hearts, what we are using as our defense to sell our cloak, uh, to give up anything that we hold is important in this life, any way that we want to use our time or our energy and say, no, the way that we're going to be prepared in final analysis is the true sword of the Spirit. But then finally, we prepare for suffering by remembering the power of prayer, the power of prayer. And it's always prayer that, that goes along with the word of God as our foundation. And, and this is what we see in, in verse 39 to 46. Um, and especially look at verse 40. It says, pray that you may not enter into temptation. That's what Jesus tells the disciples. Verse 46, he says it again. Why, disciples, are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So even as Jesus is, is modeling prayer on the very precipice of suffering, calling out to God, he commands his disciples to stay awake and to pray, to be ready, to, to, to watch and pray that they may not enter into temptation. And that's what we said in the Lord's Prayer. This is what we pray as the church corporately. This is what we pray individually. Lord, lead me not into temptation. 
deliver me from evil. And you say, well, what does this look like? And, and I wanted to briefly share what this looked like for me this week. Um, Eloise has been a great sleeper overall at four months. Um, but she was earlier in the week, she started not sleeping very well. About midweek, she woke up 10 times um, in the night. Uh, and by about the sixth time, I think it was you know, two in the morning or uh, three in the morning, uh, I, I was grumpy. I'll confess it. <laughs> was frustrated, not the best person to, to be around, uh, not exactly the, the, the model of contentment and grace in my heart. And I, I then got up that morning, sat down with my coffee to work, and I, and I was watched and prayed that you may not enter into temptation. And I thought, could I have ever predicted that I could have a sleepless night? Could I have ever predicted that not sleeping would bring the temptation to, to grumble or to complain or to, to be unkind to those around me whom I love? Yeah, of course I could have predict, pr predicted that. Did I watch and pray that I may not enter into temptation? No. Was I, was I preparing in advance before it came, Lord, help me if, if I have to wake up a lot, let me be kind, let me be content, uh, let me be uh, gentle, uh, let me be long-suffering, that that's the prayer. And, and I think for all of us, if we have a sense that suffering is coming, and with that suffering is temptation, are we praying? Are we are we watching in advance, Lord, give me the grace. Give me future grace to be able to withstand the temptation when it comes. Because it could be a, a crying baby at 3 in the morning, but it could be something far worse. It could be sickness. It could be cancer. It could be an accident. It could be the death of a, of a loved one. It could be unemployment. It could be identity theft. Who knows what will come into your life? Are you watching? Are you praying? Are you preparing and praying in advance, Lord, guard me against temptation when it comes. But of course, ultimately, the, the way that we are, are guarded against temptation is through keeping our eyes on, on Jesus, on the suffering of Christ, that it is the suffering of Jesus that prepares us to suffer. Because Jesus, yes, he's preparing to suffer. The, the suffering is about to break into his life in a powerful ways he's handed over to the officials but as you look at our text it's clear that Jesus is already suffering that he's already suffering in prayer he's crying out to God he's sweating um, as blood it says um, he um, seems almost undone in contemplation of what is about to come upon him and you say why that, that there are so many examples of people in history facing death, even non-believers facing suffering and death with, with grace, with confidence, with assurance. You think of, of the what you read about Socrates drinking the hemlock, completely calm, having conversations with the people around him, not afflicted in any way. Is Jesus more afraid of death than Socrates? Is Jesus less prepared to face suffering than a, a pagan philosopher? And the answer is no, that, that I think what, what's happening here, that Jesus, is, he's on the precipice of suffering. He's not afraid of the pain. He's not afraid of the uh, suffering. He's not afraid of death. He knows the, the promises of God. He knows what's on the other side. 
but the distress, the, the suffering, I think, is, is coming from this contemplation of the cup that he's going to have to drink, that, that he's going to drink the cup of the wrath of God, that he's going to drink the cup of hell itself down to the dregs. He's going to drink the very judgment that, that you and I deserve. Um, and that is the cup of eternal suffering, that in this life we may suffer, and outside of Christ that, that suffering is hard, but the Bible says that outside of Christ, there's something even harder on the other side, and that is the weight of eternal suffering, the judgment of God because of sin, separated from God forever. And that was the suffering that Jesus was preparing to take on himself, the full weight. And that's why he says, Lord, if you're willing, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but your will be done. And thankfully, though, even as Jesus made that prayer, that Jesus did take the cup and he drank that cup of the wrath of God down to the dregs. And he did it so that as we, we come to this meal today, that we can drink the cup of life, that he drank the cup of wrath, the cup of God's curse, so that we can drink the cup of, of God's blessing. And so that then is our, our lifeline, that when we suffer with Christ in this life, we know that it's temporary. It might be intense suffering for a moment, but in Jesus, the promise is, is eternal joy, eternal life. And that's, that's our hope. That's our lifeline to prepare for the storm when it comes, because we know that the storm of this life will not get the final say.